This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Hawaii tourism is at a crossroads. This session, lawmakers stopped short of replacing the Hawaii Tourism Authority with an office within the Department of Business and Economic Development, where it used to be decades ago. Some say HTA was created to get around an office fraught with political interference. Tourism consultant Frank Haas recalls his time as a vendor for the Hawaii Visitors Bureau when it used to be under DBED. He, along with economics professor Emeritus James Mack and economist Paul Brubaker, are calling for a holistic governance model to help us get tourism right. We hear a lot about industry buzzwords like sustainable and regenerative, but how about smart tourism? How do we get it right? Here's Haas. My experience was watching this governance model through DBED and, and seeing all the all the challenges that there were with having it housed in DBED. Uh, and of course, the change came because of all the challenges that people saw. I, if anyone recalls in Governor Cayetano's time, there was an economic uh, recovery task force because tourism had gotten very sluggish and the economy was uh, was in trouble. And uh, the task force recommended moving it out of DBED and creating a separate agency so they could focus on on uh, tourism and have a long-range, um, long-range view and dedicated funding, so that was the move out of DBED into a separate agency, and now we're talking about moving it back to DBED, which of course just brings back those same problems. In the years that we've been writing about tourism governance, we've we've said all along that that we think there's a change that needs to be made. The point that we've been trying to make is that we need to take a long, good look at what the alternatives are and find the best possible model for us. I think in analyzing some of the challenges we've had in, in governing tourism, we recognize why HTA, despite all its good intentions, has not been ultimately successful. And it's not their fault. It's the, the model that are working in doesn't have sufficient authority or sufficient resources and sufficient ability to collaborate with other other agencies to really address the complexity of tourism. And what we've suggested is that we find a model that, that addresses that, that takes a long-range view, that has a way of engaging and directing other agencies, and, and, and is properly funded. The legislature stopped short of just abolishing HTA altogether. You know, we have this unusual structure of the governor getting a $200 million, what they're calling a slush fund, and he has moved some of the money, uh, you know, into uh, HTA to be able to fulfill those marketing and the management RFPs that have gone out. So that can still function. That's a Band-Aid, though. Uh, one of the things I stressed when we, it comes to to finding a, a permanent fix for tourism is having that long-range view and long-term dedicated funding. Because without that, you can't. There's no silver bullet in fixing tourism management. There's there's things that are going to take time, and you need to know that you have a long-term vision and that you have the funding to realize it in order to ultimately be successful. And we saw what happened with the hotel room tax. A lot of that went to the counties. Yeah, and now now there's no uh, money, there's no more money coming from the, the fund, from that uh, TAT fund to support uh, tourism. So we're back to where we were when it was in DBED, where every year they have to go to the legislature and make their case. Now, if you want to do something long-term, like develop new festivals or develop uh, a relationship with a sporting event or something like that, you have to be able to say, I, I know I'm going to have money this year, next year, the following year, so I can negotiate and make those commitments. And without, without having that dedicated funding, it puts us at a disadvantage in terms of having that long-term vision. So we're still treading water. Mm -hmm. Now, HTA has made some significant changes. I just think the legislature was just frustrated that they didn't see the changes coming fast enough. In fact, I was a, a contractor working on the 2020 strategic plan. And the 2020 strategic plan for Hawaii Tourism Authority was a radical shift from where it had been in the past. It said very definitively that we are going to embrace this idea of destination management. Destination management has always been part of their kuleana, part of their charge but it hasn't been a mandate. If you read the statute that created Hawaii Tourism Authority way back in 1998, it says you shall be focused on marketing. And then there's a whole list of things that are related to destination management, but the language is much if you're there. It says you, sh you may do this and you may engage with other agencies. And the problem is that uh, the Tourism Authority has had good intentions and they've had plans that have laid out the need for 
a more comprehensive system to manage tourism, but they haven't been able to direct other agencies or work closely with other agencies to accomplish that. Coming out of the 2020 plan, they have been more aggressive in, in working with other agencies, but, but we think in all these papers that, that we've written that it needs to be stronger than that. There has to be some authority that actually has the wherewithal, the, the, the stature, to create a, an overall plan for the state and then, and then work with the agencies to develop specific plans that how to accomplish that in, in each of these functional areas. So you're calling for like a tourism czar? Well, we're not certain of what it's going to be look like, but it, it, one agency, one entity, one person, whether it's a czar or an agency like HTA, has to have that blessing from the ultimate authority, which is the governor, and says, we are going to develop a tourism plan. And you're responsible, whoever this person or agency is in developing it. And then you, person or agency, have to work with DLNR, DLIR, the counties. And in fact, I worked, <laughs> I've been around too long. I worked in 2005, uh, we did a tourism strategic plan. And it laid out nine initiatives, not just marketing. We laid out nine initiatives. And we said all these things have to be addressed in order for tourism to, to be successful. So marketing was in the mix. But Hawaiian culture, community, workforce development, long-range planning, safety and security, they were all part of that plan. But HTA only had the authority to work on, on marketing. marketing. So those other things fell by the wayside. And when they came to redo the plan 10 years later, they said, we're just going to do what we're able to do, which is mostly marketing. You're basically advocating, all right, let's seize this opportunity, take a deep breath, hopefully try and see clearly uh, about the shortcomings, you know, with the model that we've got now, uh, trying to address some of the lawmakers' concerns and really forge a path where you are getting the input from the community about what works and what doesn't work. And, and it always has to be starting with the community. I mean, if the community is not benefit, there's no point. So you have to start with that. And then you say, how, what is the best model that we can develop that drives tourism to the point where it, it's actually regenerative, where it actually benefits the, the community. And the good news, I guess, in a strange sort of way, is other, other places have had this problem before us, and other places are changing their governance models. One of the things that we propose is let's take a look at some of the things that are working in other places and see if there's a lesson for Hawaii to, 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 to take. And I think you pointed out, like, is it Switzerland? Switzerland is one of them. Europe in general has had over tourism as a problem for some time. So many of the countries in Europe have been addressing them. Now, we're not a country, so we have some challenges. There's some things that they can do in Europe that we, we can't do here. We have this thing called the Constitution. So there are some things, limits to, uh, to what you can do. We can't, for example, put a cap on the number of people coming here just outright. I mean, there are some ways you can manage tourism flows, but you can't it's just illegal. say we're going to, yeah. <laughs> the Constitution has this thing called the, the uh, Commerce Clause, where you can't forbid other U.S. people to come to a place. But if you look at examples like Switzerland or even Venice or Barcelona, they've been aggressively working on managing tourism and changing their models. Barcelona, in fact, had a parting of the ways with their uh, destination management organization because over disagreements on how uh, much attention was going to be made to marketing versus management. So that's that's an example of an issue that we're looking at here that's already been looked at in other places. In Europe, I know they have something called the curse of the cruise ships because they have so many pulling into port and so many at one time. And, and uh, as certain venues are closed on certain days, then other venues just get swamped mm -hmm. with the thousands of people that, uh, you know, come off those ships. Well, and this is not just cruise ships. If you look at just sites, what HTA calls hotspots, We've had hotspots where there just too many people for the place. And we've been addressing some of those hotspots with these destination management action plans, but on a sort of one-off basis. And what we're proposing is that, that that's a great start, that we've got some traction going here. But let's come up with a model where we can do that more comprehensively and across, across the state. So we have examples like Hyena. We have uh, now Diamond Head Trail. Uh, Hanauma uh, has been managed now for some time. Anytime you make a change, it's uncomfortable. So people said, oh, how, how can you start charging for entrance to places? But people get used to it. So well, there are some things we need to look at. I just had an experience where I was over at Kotalina 
and all the public parking was taken and we had to go into the paid parking and for the first time we had to pay fifteen dollars to park in the for a beach to mm-hmm. go swimming and that was kind of startling yeah it is startling but people do get used to it but um we we have the opportunity to take other paths to spreading out tourism and, and minimizing the disruptions. So there are a lot of events that you can have where you can have lots of people in a place and it's not a problem. I, for many years, I was the chairman of the Hawaii Book and Music Festival, which is a wonderful event. It celebrates our culture. It celebrates our ideas, our thinking, our, our community. And that's at Kapilani Park. And over two days, I think we've had as many as 15,000 people, but it never feels crowded because it's spread over two days and it's on a site that's big enough for 15,000 people. And that's, everybody had a great, great time. Nobody felt over, over tourism or overpressed. Uh, so we need to be thinking about things like that. Uh, I was uh, on a panel with somebody who came here to talk about over-tourism. I, and I told her the next day, I said, let me take you to some places, because she was talking about over-tourism in Hawaii. Let me take you to some places and show you where over-tourism is not a problem. And I took her on a walking tour downtown. We went to the State Art Museum. We went to St. Andrew's Cathedral. We went to the uh, Ielani Palace. And those are all places that are accommodating, but they're they're not overstressed. So if we can get people to go to these less populated sites. So you, you manage the, the time in the hotspots, so you restrict access or you, you charge for access, but then you introduce people to other things that are uh, available that aren't a problem. I think what the legislature did out of frustration is they said, we're gonna, we're gonna do this particular thing. What we're proposing is take, take a pause, not a big pause, because <laughs> we, we do need to move forward, but let's look at alternative models and let's look at what the positives and negatives are and then let's find the best possible model for us. Now, back in 1998, that's what they did when they came up with HTA. It's just that they didn't quite get it right. They came close, they had an agency that was dedicated to tourism. It had dedicated funding, but it didn't have the kuleana to really manage the the place. So let's take a pause again and look at at what we've learned in the last 25 years and come up with a better model. Well, I think DBED's numbers are projecting next year that we're going to you know go over 10 million. Mm-hmm. You know, and so we've got to do something quick. It's not an option. It's not an option. And we had the I think during we had a golden opportunity at COVID when it was shut down to say, okay, we, we don't need to market right now. Let's let's take our time and and work on this problem and here we are, and we're going to head back over to 10 million visitors again pretty soon. All right. Well, thank you so much, Frank Haas. Hello. That was Frank Haas, who, along with economists James Mack and Paul Brubaker, wrote a paper advocating for a new governance model for tourism. We should note Haas is a former HPR board member and is with Guild Consulting, an HPR unwriter. <laughs> This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Today we're asking you what you know about an extinct Hawaiian bird. This bird was prized for its yellow feathers, which were used for the featherwork that adorn Hawaiian royalty. Kamehameha the first famous feather cloak was made entirely from the feathers of this bird, and an estimated 80,000 of them were captured to make that single garment. This bird lived in the high forest canopy where it fed on nectar, which it drew from plants with its curved beak. It was mostly black in color with the yellow and gold feathers that made it so valuable on its rump and tail. Hawaiians collected the birds by removing sap from sandalwood trees and breadfruit to create a sticky paste that they place near the blossoms of lobelias. The birds would drink the nectar and their feet would get stuck in the sap. Their Latin name is uh, Drupanus Pacifica, but today we're looking for their Hawaiian name. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689. 
3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right scores an HPR reusable tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii and its Community Giving Initiative. Learn more about how this program is supporting nonprofits focusing on affordable housing projects at nareethawaii.com. This Tuesday at 8 p.m., the Hawaii Symphony returns to HPR 2 with guest conductor Andrew Grams and violinist Kristen Lee performing Haydn's Symphony No. 60, Fung's Violin Concerto, and Stravinsky's Pulcinella. That's 8 p.m. Tuesday on HPR2, your home for classical music, right after evening concert. Sponsored by Honolulu Financial Partners. just announced it will begin initial rail service at the end of June and will offer free rides for four days around the 4th of July holiday. We sat down with Roger Morton, the city's transportation director. He is the institutional memory dating back 50 years ago when the very first rail project was proposed. This system has really been in the works for 55 years, since 1968. And finally, after three major attempts, we're ready to open rail for the citizens of Honolulu. Yes, and you were around at that time, you know, it was yeah. MTL, right? And well, I started my career with actually with the city's Department of Transportation Services. Uh, and then I, uh, I left for a year, a couple of years to get a graduate degree, but then I came back and yes, you're right, I ended up as a, first as a consultant and then as a longtime bus company MTL employee. Yes, the days of Woody Miyagi. Uh, Woody Miyagi, <laughs> Al Moniz, yes. uh, George Stansel. Uh, that's when I came into the system. And I, I came in as Al's uh, sort of executive assistant. Uh, and so I was really blessed by just having the gr these great mentors throughout my entire career. So you have that institutional memory of, and, and maybe it's just kind of alas, we could have had a train sooner than later. And here it is much later. Yeah. Uh, but we're on the cusp of getting this thing going. Yeah, the, the old history is, you know, that we uh, had an approved uh, program from what was then the Urban Mass Transportation Administration uh, under uh, Mayor Frank Fossey. Uh, and uh, I think in the, was it the 76 mayoral race um, or the 80 uh, where he lost to Mayor Anderson uh, and Mayor Anderson killed that system. Uh, and then again, under the second reign of Mayor um, Fossey, we had another one in the 90s, uh, and the council voted that uh, uh, down, and I think it was a five to four vote yes. to the surprise of many of us. Yes, I was a city hall reporter at the time, mm -hmm. and I think uh, I was walking around, I was expecting, and my firstborn is in his 30s, and so it, it is kind of sad to think that, yeah, another generation has gone by and we don't have rail. Yeah, so, I mean, in the first iteration, uh, rail was expected to be about a $900 million system. It was going to go from Pearl City to Market City, uh, and the federal government was going to put up 80% of the funding. And then I think by the second time we tried it, it was about a $3.5 billion system and the federal government was only going to put put up 50%. And now here we are at a more, you know, 10 billion plus and the federal government shares about 15%. So too bad we didn't do it way back when. Yeah, but so you've come with that history, mm -hmm. you know, and there are lots of people that are very cynical uh, and still upset because they think it's going to cost us a lot of money going forward. But it will provide an alternative for folks on the west side sure. coming into town. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think what, what folks always do is they look at how are things right now today, uh, and traffic is 
pretty bad. It's not, frankly, it's not as bad as it was pre-COVID because I think that there are there is less traffic in general. But what we have to remember is there's 22,000 permitted dwelling units still out there, and development is not going to stop. So Ho'opili is going to fill in. Uh, you know, Coa Ridge is going to fill in. This system is not built for uh, for today. Well, it is built for today, but it's also built for. Uh, our generations to come, and and that's that's really what the investment is. You know, and I think too, when there was the announcement about the second city at Kapolei, right? And mm. you know, there are some people that do live in town and drive out to work over there, and so hopefully that then they can jump on rail here and head out to the west side. Yeah, and and you know when you when when I look at the system, and I've, I've seen it, you know, not that many times, but a few times. It, it is really going to. It's really an awesome system, and it's going to. You know, it's going to really uh, surprise people at just how modern, uh, how how well it looks, how the, the ride quality. You know, when we were at the Aloha Stadium uh, a couple of days ago announcing the new date, you know, we're we are right there beside Kamehameha Highway, uh, and w- there were three trains that pulled in while we were making our our announcement. You had to strain to hear the trains over the, 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 the traffic from the highway. So I think people are going to be amazed at, at just how quiet the system is. Well, I just came from a trip, and in San Francisco, uh, I got on the BART mm-hmm. from the airport. And there is an area where it's really loud, uh, and I took notice of that. I was also in D.C., and I think it was the newest leg from Dulles into town, and mm-hmm. that was fabulous. Quiet, and that one, I think there was a lot of hand, hand-wringing over that, but... You know, as a as a visitor, boy, was it efficient. Yeah, and and you know, when we have our rail connection, and that's really two years from now. You know, we will have uh, the system going to Middle Street, but including uh, Daniel K. Anoy Airport. Uh, that'll that'll be you know a major uh, uh, change you know change for the for the whole island, but especially uh, you know go fast forward to 2030, 2031 when we finally get into downtown. Uh, and Civic Center, and and hopefully to Alamoana Center, uh, that that's when I think that the real benefits of uh, of the system are really going to show. And there are folks who still wanted to go to UH Manoa. UH Manoa, uh, a better connection to Waikiki, uh, further west toward in to uh, to downtown Kapolei. Uh, you know, those those are are all obvious things that we should do now. When would we do those? I grew up in Canada, so uh, in the summer, I would be staying with my aunt in Toronto, and and they built their first subway there in 1954. It was four miles long. Uh, And now, uh, fast forward 75 years or so, not that long, but uh, 60 years, now the system is over 100 miles long, uh, and it goes. So so when you're investing in in rail transit, uh, it is not... Uh, a short-term rail. It's like the it's like the freeway. I mean, it's it's a it's a utility that will be there for many many years. And you know, it, it took us uh, 20, 25 years to build H one. Uh, it took us twenty years or so or more to build H three. So these big mega projects, these transportation, these linear projects, uh, you know, you know, they they really they take a, a long time, but they make a permanent uh, impact on a city. Yeah, I get you when you drive on the H3, you know, there were the the, the cultural concerns, mm-hmm. the archaeological concerns about building a, a pathway through that area, but boy, having that third tunnel, that really helps. Yeah, I, I think a lot of the people that were opposed to the H3 way back in the day, uh, you know, now, uh, you know, I think it, generally, I think everybody on the island accepted as a, as a tremendous uh, asset for the entire island and, and really one of the most beautiful highways in the in the world in my opinion and rail riders will have uh, the views of honolulu harbor and diamond head in the distance to enjoy while on the new train system that it is calling skyline uh, we've been hearing from roger morton director of the city's department of transportation services he also sits on the heart board and for decades served as head of the oahu transit services the company that operates the bus. The city just announced it will begin limited service June 30th and for four days will offer free rides on the Skyline Transit System, offering a bird's eye view on the elevated track. We'll hear more uh, on the uh, inaugural rollout plans right after a short break.
Support for HPR comes from Stadia Capital Group, a Hawaii-based investment firm committed to community and supporting charitable organizations. Learn more about its new legacy gifting fund at stadiacapitalgroup.com. Hip replacement surgery has advanced over the past decade, and now getting back to the activities that you love is easier than ever. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with an expert about the latest innovations in hip replacement surgery. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Kumukahua Theater. From the odd uncle to the hapai mom, Lee Cataluna's Folk Shumit and Longs features characters from the store's aisles. Opens May 25th, kumukahua.org. If you're just joining us, we are having a conversation with City Transportation Director Roger Morton. The city is taking over operations of the rail project on the first 10, 11 miles from Kapolei to the now defunct Aloha Stadium. The public is invited to check out the system starting June 30th. Here's more on what's in store. You know, we want to demonstrate this train to everybody on Oahu, not just those on the west side or, or in Pearl City, but we really want to, uh, for because everybody has paid into this system, uh, and so we are planning uh, to have an opening ceremony on June 30th. Uh, that ceremony will be at 10. We'll have dignitaries and speeches and, and those things. But at 2 o'clock, we want to open the system up to everybody. Uh, and then we're going to open it really from 2 until 6 on that day. Uh, you don't need a holo card. We're just going to keep the gates open. Uh, we do caution people that, uh, you know, that there, there could be lines. Uh, and, and the other thing is that we're going to also make the system free. We're going to make our entire transit system free for the four days of the of the 4th of July weekend. That's Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and the 4th of July Tuesday. So, you know, during that time, uh, we invite people to, to get a holo card because we're going to require you have a holo card during those periods. But we you just need the card. We're not going to take any money off the card. It's going to be free. But we really want as many people as we can to come down, albeit, you know, please don't all come on the first day. Uh, spread it out a little bit just so we can handle uh, that, you know, we, we're, we're going to be new at this, and we want to make sure that we do it right. Yeah, there might be some hiccups, but you want a little bit more patience. <laughs> a little bit more patience, and, and, you know, don't all try to get on the first train. Spread yourself out a little bit. Trains will be running every 10 minutes, and so there'll be a lot of trains, a lot of capacity. And uh, I, I think most people will come and just be will be very uh, impressed with the, the you know the sleekness of the system and you know it, it's it's a it's a driverless system the first one in the country not the first one in the world by any means but the first one in, in the USA it's the first the first system in the USA that has what we call platform gates that means it's kind of like a people mover in an airport a lot of people have seen those where there there's gates on the platform it'll be the one of the first systems that has a open gangway and I think for those that are used to rail systems on the mainland when you go from car to car sometimes you got to open a door and sometimes there's it's kind of they don't want you to do that cuz it's kind of risky but ours is more like an articulated bus so it goes the full length you can walk freely from one side of the train to the other and i know access is a concern uh, because while it will provide another avenue for folks who might be in wheelchairs to get around, they are concerned about, you know, how does this all work? Okay. So this is a rapid rail system. And what that means is that there are no level crossings. There's no uh, traffic that you got to stop for. There's no trucks that you might crash into as there could be in a commuter rail system or a light rail system. This is a system that's on its own exclusive guideway, uh, separated from traffic, which is really the key to it. So from a accessibility uh, point of view, all stations have elevators, all stations have accessible paths. Uh, the, uh, the gap between the platform 
uh, and the train, unlike the ones in the UK and in some cities, uh, it's designed for wheelchairs to roll without friction, without anything on them. Now, once you get into the car in a wheelchair, for example, a lot of our folks are used to getting strapped down in a wheelchair. Uh, but in a rapid rail system, that's not required. And the reason is, is because with the lack of level crossings, the lack of interfering traffic, it's a very smooth, engineered ride. It, it accelerates at the same rate uh, all the time. It decelerates at the same rate. So no requirement, no need for that. So basically you come in, you set your brake on your chair, and, and the train will leave, and there's no need to uh, have straps put on. And I know we have had our first responders do drills. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, when I was on BART recently, there was a delay for a medical emergency. Sure, and, and that will happen uh, here. Uh, you know, hopefully uh, that's a reality in, in public transportation. Uh, of course, on a rail system, if it happens, the train has to stop at a station. Uh, the medical personnel have to come in, and it can delay service. So if there is a delay of... of uh, Uh, any uh, appreciable length of time. We have also been training with the bus company, which I'm very familiar with. Yes. Uh, And uh, we've trained so that we can rapidly set up a bridge between two stations so we can get around uh, an issue where there is an issue. Now, you know, medical issues do happen from time to time. Mechanical issues can happen. So we've we've drilled to try to uh, have procedures to not stop everybody, but maybe sometimes we'll have to transfer to a bus if there's an emergency. Okay, and any plan for folks in wheelchairs uh, during this first four-day of the rollout? Any special accommodations? Well, yeah, I mean, we are planning, I think we're planning some advanced visitations with some of the disability groups. I think we have something in about two weeks from now where we're going to do that. We are planning on having an advanced day for our disabled community to come in uh, before we go into revenue service so that those that want to come and, and learn how the system works will be offered in a, a date when they can do that. So we want to make sure that we we do you know treat our, our folks with disability so that because uh, it is a little different if you're in, if you're in a wheelchair uh, or if you're um, sight impaired or, are those and, and we built features into the system to accommodate as many disabilities as we can. Okay, but there will be community meetings to help with there'll, the transition. Uh, there'll be actually some uh, some explorations right at the stations. We're going to invite people to come to the stations, sample the see how the system works. There are going to be some sort of sit down classroom type uh, discussions. But there'll also be some uh, real world. Here's here's the system. Here's the elevators. Here's the train. Uh, here's how you get on. Here's where you where you stow yourself. Well, we won't have games at the stadium, you know, to as a magnet to draw people down there. But I know you folks are looking at different employment centers like the shipyard. But if there are any other, I guess, businesses or areas that maybe I don't know what kind of feedback you've gotten at this point, or if your your you know hub and spoke plan needs tweaking. Yeah, so we are uh, going to be adjusting our bus system on July 1st. That's the first full day of revenue service. And so some of, I mean, we will be tweaking our system on the west side and we'll be actually adding a couple of new routes on the west side that connect directly with rail. At the uh, stadium side uh, where the system uh, will terminate, we'll have a 10 minute articulated bus express service into town that'll match the rail hours. The rail will operate every 10 minutes uh, and a bus system will be there to operate every 10 minutes. So we're going to try to make that transition from rail to express bus as easy as we possibly can. It's not as good as when the system will get into town, but we're going to do our best to try to, to do it. So that express bus would pick people up at the stadium station. It would uh, quickly get onto the freeway, and it would go into town nonstop and then on to the University of Hawaii. Okay, well, I know lots of uh, motorists, lots of residents have questions and I like to invite you back for mm-hmm. a you know a whole hour maybe we can take listener questions because people want to know about you know parking and mm-hmm. maybe some of the details haven't been quite worked out yet but we would love to have you back on again yeah we'd be happy to come back at any time Catherine all right well thanks so much Roger okay that was Roger Morton he led the Oahu Transit Services um, company which operates the bus and He's now the city transportation director and a member of HART, the Honolulu Authority for Rapid Transportation. Uh, 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 uh,
we're also looking ahead at the development that comes hand in hand with rail. Some say that's the real reason we have a train, not just for transportation, but for revitalization of older neighborhoods and to build more housing, badly needed housing. Get ready for high rises along the route? Well, for that, we talked to HPR reporter Casey Harlow. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, so tomorrow, uh, Honolulu's uh, Department of Planning and Permitting is uh, holding a community meeting for the Halava area uh, for what's known as the Transit-Oriented Development Plan, or TOD plan. You may have heard about that a a lot in recent years. Uh, Basically, it's a plan to develop areas, expand resources along the rail so that uh, it'll promote activity, uh, residential areas, and... Yeah, uh, and although interim service is going to be slated for June 30th, which you've heard earlier in the show, uh, vision for housing and businesses along the rail line are still in development to create uh, future projects uh, such as in Halava, right? There's a lot of visions for the new Aloha Stadium Entertainment District, uh, which seems to have been put on hold for a little bit. Maybe it's a little bit too expensive for uh, the green administration's uh, liking. Also, there is a housing development uh, nearby uh, that the Hawaii Public Housing Authority oversees, uh, Pu'uwai Momi. Uh, there's a lot of redevelopment uh, plans for that area as well. And to support all that kind of kinds of things, uh, there is infrastructure needs. There is uh, looking ahead for the zoning itself. And that's what DBP is coming in with uh, for the community. Um, I spoke with Tim Straits. Uh, he's the city's acting TOD administrator based within DPP. He says the state owns roughly 2,000 acres along the rail corridor, and a lot of that is in Halava. And he he has some plans for uh, this area as well. This area is already pretty far along in terms of when uh, future development might occur. And just the scale at kind of the, the blank slate that, so to say, that you have with all that surface parking lot around Aloha Stadium, allowing for a new community to sprout up is, is really different from a lot of the other rail station areas that would more likely see uh, slower, gradual, infill type of developments occurring over the years. And it's worth noting that the city council approved uh, all these TOD plans back in 2020, uh, and Halava is the third uh, special district, if I recall correctly, uh, that is going to receive some changes. The other two were in Waipahu and uh, Pearl City area. And uh, as uh, Straits has said, the plans are currently underway. Previously, we've rezoned Waipahu TOD neighborhood and the IA Pearl City TOD neighborhood. And as part of the zone changes, that also includes establishing the TOD special district. Generally, the zone changes will include uh, mixed-use zoning, which allows for both uh, residential and commercial on the same property. And then the TOD special district, which accompanies that, allows for additional regulation on top of that underlying zoning and that could include things that are pedestrian-oriented, so pushing buildings up close to the street, uh, including transparency on the ground floor for that interaction between the private and public realm and tucking parking in the back. And obviously this will all include, you know, special considerations for higher density and also height restrictions that the city might have, uh, just kind of going from the ground floor up of just trying to pack in as much as you could, especially since, you know, we are facing a housing crisis and there is uh, opportunity here that a lot of state lawmakers and city lawmakers see. Right, right. And, and initially the height, uh, lifting the height restrictions was just for the TOs, TOD zone areas, but there are, are projects that are asking to go up higher even though they're not in the TOD zone. So it's something to watch. Exactly. And uh, I've spoken with uh, Senator Chang previously. He has some visions for the area as well. Uh, But, you know, his whole reasoning uh, to create these higher uh, density or to have the uh, higher uh, height restrictions is so that the neighborhoods that you see that, um, you know, like back in Pearl, uh, in Iaea, Pearl City, Waipahu, uh, the neighborhoods that, you know, are kind of already packed won't change. You know, they won't have those kinds of monster homes or uh, those bigger buildings, so to say. So everything that's changing is within the rail develop- the rail corridor. And obviously, you know, infrastructure plays a big part of this, right? We have to, you have to build the capacity for future development, and that's not lost on the state or the city. 
uh, Pu'uwai Momi, uh, which is with the Hawaii Public Housing Authority. They have a little bit more than 200 units currently. But this also plays into the authority's uh, goal of creating 10,000 new homes. And so they're pl- I believe they're proposing an adding another 1,700 to create 2,000 units on that parcel. Uh, but as Strait said, uh, the state is taking the lead on upgrading these uh, infrastructure in Halava and also in Kapalama and Ivalay. Tudian is about supporting higher density uses near the station because that's where you can concentrate more people in a walkable distance to the rail. But a lot of those neighborhoods would also need uh, more infrastructure to actually fulfill the, the visions of those uh, TOD uh, neighborhoods. And so in the Halava area, they've already taken that kind of first look at the infrastructure needs and potential ways to finance some of the deficiencies. And tomorrow's meeting is happening at the IA Elementary School's uh, cafeteria at 5.30 p.m. And the recommendations will then go to the Planning Commission and then straight to the City Council for review and approval. All right. Well, thanks so much, Casey. Thanks. We've been talking with HPR's Casey Harlow. You can read his stories on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Civil Beat has a story about another tool to help with our fentanyl crisis. Reporter Paula Dobbins joins us. Hi, Paula. Hey, Catherine. How are you? Good, good. So, yes, you know, we've been hearing so much about the fentanyl crisis, particularly on the Big Island. So uh, what's the plan right now? Um, well, there is a new tool that hopefully will be um, unveiled soon if um, Governor Green uh, signs this bill that passed the legislature uh, unanimously um, just recently. It's Senate Bill uh, 671, and it's a bill that will um, decriminalize fentanyl test strips. Um, Test strips are these very simple devices that um, can reveal whether a drug has um, fentanyl, this synthetic opioid that's really powerful in it. Um, And they've been credited with saving a lot of lives um, because you know, nowadays fentanyl is appearing in many, many different types of drugs. Um, you know, people might think that they're buying Xanax or Valium, but it's actually laced with fentanyl. And even a tiny bit of fentanyl can kill you. So um, harm reduction um, advocates are saying that, you know, these fentanyl test strips can really help save a lot of lives. And so now with this bill uh, passed, hopefully, you know, these these devices will be more readily available in the state and will help people um, stay alive. Yes, and we've had more than 300 people die of overdoses from this drug. And again, like I said, particularly on the Big Island, and the stories are just heartbreaking. Yeah, it's it was a record year last year, um, so the numbers are going up, and um, fortunately, you know, the Big Island does have this very active task force that involves a wide range of people, including law enforcement, nonprofits, um, Native Hawaiian groups, um, you know, just, and, and of course, families, families who've lost people or are trying to keep their family members safe. Uh, it's, it's a very active task force, and some say it's really a model for the rest of Hawaii because it's really, um, you know, done a lot to advocate for policy changes, including this bill. Um, many have said that um, the the guy who runs this task force, you know, called up Senator Joy uh, San Buenaventura and said, look, we really need to get these test strips into, into the hands of the people that need them. And so she, um, you know, took the reins and wrote this bill and, and championed it through the legislature. So, so those are some positive signs of things that are happening here on the Big Island. So if the governor signs this, then there's funding to kind of set up these vending machines that will dispense these um, test strips. Um, well, the vending machines, um, that's an effort by um, a nonprofit on, in Hawaii, in Honolulu, to offer Narcan initially. So Narcan is this overdose reversing medication that um, the FDA recently approved for over-the-counter sale. And so that's becoming much more widely available. Um, And so with a grant from the federal government, um, 
the Hawaii Health and Harm Reduction Center is going to be installing about 20 of these initially and then hopefully more. Uh, start uh, Stocked with Narcan initially, but assuming that the governor does sign this bill into law, they also will be putting fentanyl test strips into the vending machines um, so that people can both have the um, overdose reversing medication and also the tool that allows them to check if their drugs have fentanyl in them at all. And there are already city, cities and states that, that do this, that make this available, right? Yes, um, there, are, there definitely are. Um, and it's, it's something that is, you know, growing in popularity as this, unfortunately, this opioid epidemic continues to spread around the country. Um, and the woman who um, runs that um, Hawaii um, Health and Harm Reduction uh, Center, NGO, uh, Heather Lusk, she is also hoping that eventually um, Hawaii will have these um, centers where people can actually, you know, if they are drug users, they can go there and, um, you know, either inject or inhale or otherwise take their drugs under medical supervision. Um, it's another, you know, growing tool in the harm reduction sphere. And um, she's hoping that eventually the United States will approve these centers as, as they have been approved in Europe and other parts of the world um, as another way to kind of help people stay safe. Well, hopefully the governor's office will do their review. And if the bill passes muster, then he'll sign it. But thank you so much, Paula. Yeah, thank you, Catherine. That was yeah. reporter Paula Bauman with today's Reality Check. You can read her story at civilbeat.org. is the conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Astronomer Christopher Phillips and HBR's Dave Lawrence talk about the biggest explosion ever documented in space. Here's your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, or weekly look into our fascinating universe. Also, stuff we might be able to spot in the sky. And as usual, we are thrilled to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips. We've got him on the line right now. Chris, welcome back. What is in store? Hey, Dave. It's good to be back. So this week's stargazers look out for Mars and Venus in the western sky after sunset. Both planets will be visible till they set just before midnight. The moon this week will be passing through its last quarter phase, so conditions for stargazing will be perfect. Now, I understand you've been digging into that story and getting us some fresh details on the biggest explosion ever documented. Is that it? Indeed. A team of astronomers using a cornucopia of telescopes across the globe have observed the largest explosion ever. This explosive event is 10 times brighter than any known supernova, and it has been going for at least three years. Now, whilst explosions in space are extremely common, nothing has been seen on this scale before, not to mention lasting for so long. And what's the deal on the cause of it, do you think? Well, the theory is that this gargantuan explosion was caused by a black hole that is violently disrupting a massive cloud of gas, at least a thousand times the mass of the sun. That would explain why it's so bright, huh? Oh, yeah. As the black hole swallows chunks of this gas cloud, it in turn sends shockwaves through the cloud, and these shockwaves cause the gas to emit vast amounts of electromagnetic radiation, light. Now, we've seen events like this many times before, but the scale of this thing is just mind-boggling. And give us the rundown on the gear, or as you guys like to say in the UK, the kit that was used to find this stuff. <laughs> well, there was a lot of it. It was first picked up by the Zwicky Transit Facility, or ZTF, and then quickly detected by the Atlas Asteroid Spotting Network in Hawaii. Then, large telescopes in Chile and the Canary Islands were then used in conjunction with the Swift Space Telescope to follow up. A massive team effort for a massive explosion. Sounds like it. And uh, so what's next for the team? Well, there's a lot to be learned from observing this object in different wavelengths, such as X-rays. By combining this data with computer models, it is hoped that we can deepen our understanding of how and why these types of explosions occur. So plenty of work ahead. And we know we'll hear about it here on Stargazer with you, Christopher Phillips. Thank you so much. You're all welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. We'll catch you next week. And you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. 
Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to restore, maintain, and preserve the open vistas and natural beauty of Maui. More at haleakalaranch.com. Okay, now it's time for your backyard quiz answer. Earlier, we asked you about an extinct Native Hawaiian bird last spotted alive in 1898. It was a victim of its own beauty. The bright yellow feathers on its rump and tail were a coveted material for the exquisite feather cloaks favored by Hawaiian royalty. They were found only on the island of Hawaii and had a long curved beak and adapted for drawing nectar from flowers. They were said to resemble another Hawaiian bird called the o'o and were sometimes called o'o nukunumu, which means o'o with the sucking beak. Full grown, they were about nine inches long and lived in the high forest canopy where hunters would trap them using a paste made of the sap from sandalwood and breadfruit trees. They would step in the paste and get stuck there, which made it easy to pluck their feathers. The bird's Latin name, I believe, is a Japanese Pacifica, but we asked you for the Hawaiian name, which is Mamo. And our winner today, Judy Gilbert from Kaneohe, got it right. She said she learned about the Mamo in hula class. And that's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. Tomorrow, we hear about a new surf book out. It's called Surfing Sisterhood Hawaii Wahine on Waves. You can find the Conversation podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.